0: internet. I'm Holly Anderson, director of news and politics here at MTV. And this is The Stakes. I wanted to start off this episode by talking to y'all for a minute, which longtime listeners will recognize I only do when something really has gone terribly wrong. And I'm just going to take a minute here because most of the things that feel instinctively, like socially correct to say in times of turmoil, feel cheap today. I don't want to sit here and deliver platitudes. I don't want to tell you that we'll get through this together and leave it at that and pretend that that means anything. So this week's show is an offering to you, our listeners, and a tribute to our guests who all in their own way work towards a more just world. We'll hear from our poet in residence, Marcus Ellsworth, at the end of our show, and I hope his voice brings you comfort like it does for me every week. We'll hear from Pussy Riot frontwoman, Nadia Tolokonnikova.
1: I believe that music could really make people to do something. Music is really a great empowering instrument.
0: We'll also hear from the director of a film about prisons where you never see a single prison.
2: You know, there's there's a sort of failure in our thinking about prisons and the possibility of having less of them if we think of them merely as either on the one hand successful or on the other hand failed responses to crime. But first,
0: Asada's Daughters is an abolitionist group formed to address a shortage of programming and community for young black women in Chicago. They hold weekly meetings to teach black feminism and the power of organizing in the spirit of Asada Shakur, an activist, member of the Black Panther Party, and the Black Liberation Army. Podcast producer James T. Green spent an evening at one of their meetings in a basement in Chicago's Washington Park neighborhood. He sat down with some of the young women in the program and two of the organizers, Kyra Lee Connor and Paige May. Here they are discussing the results of the twenty sixteen presidential election, the prison industrial complex, and their current fundraising campaign.
3: Okay, uh, cool. So we can open with, I guess, like five words of just how you're feeling right
0: now.
3: <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> I know it's probably like a billion words you can say, so that's I was like, let's five words of like if you could. Trump is president.
0: This sucks.
3: <laughs> okay. <Right. laughs> Do they have to make
0: sense like in a sentence? Because no. mine's just like just five words. I all over the place. They can five words that just associations anything.
3: Trying to get through weak. I hate America so much. <laughs> That's real. White supremacy rears, it's ugly head making that one work. <laughs> Some people need Real face slaps <laughs> <laughs> yes. right. my name is Kyra L. Connor and my pronouns are she and hers my name is Paige May and my pronouns are she her uh so Asada's Daughters um is an intergenerational collective of black women and girls uh that started up um out of a love and respect and uh honor of Asada Shakur. Um, we got started about almost two years ago um, out of uh, the Radical Monarchs, which were a group that came out of the Radical Brownies, actually, initially, um, in California. Um, and they were just this radical group of black and brown girls going to protests and doing different support things for different actions that were happening there. Folks here, specifically Paige, was like, hey, we should start that in Chicago. Um, So we decided to start something similar, but ours is a little bit different, where uh, it's all black girls, um, black folks in the collective, Um, and it's run uh, in a very holistic way, where everything we learn is about connecting young people to the Black Lives Matter movement. My name is Elijah, and to me, Asada's Daughters is, like, a safe place for black girls to learn to organize. Because to have Black Lives Matter in your bio is one thing, but to be actually in communities doing something is an entirely different feeling of, like, being a part of something. My name is Nina Turner. Uh, Asada's Daughters, to me, it means, like, an opportunity to be surrounded by people that have, like, the same mindset as myself. And it just gives me an opportunity just, like, to be free and be myself and not be, like, judged by people like, oh, you're too radical or, oh, you know, you always have to say stuff that's against the system and you can never just be happy with something and deepen my understanding of things. My name is Asha, and I love Asanta's Daughters because it allows me to... um, create action in
1: something i'm very compassionate about like um it gives you a really
3: definite knowledge of what's not taught in society of what really goes on in our country and etc is uh, very fantastic you should really join
4: <laughs> honestly how are y'all feeling <laughs> after this whole election thing
3: Personally, I'm not completely surprised um, because of, yeah, you know, the the culture shift or, you know, I don't know if everyone calls it a shift, but just what's happening right now. So I'm not completely surprised. So I, I oddly feel like I'm on the path to readiness. I'm like, it's OK. Not it's OK, but we're do- making the steps to, like, combat what's going to happen. Um, and it's just for me, it's like, all right, we need to do this work now more than ever um, and just to keep you know, bringing in that information um, where it's just like we said where there's something currently happening let's throw this into what we're talking about right now how does it connect to what we're talking about and how can we combat this so I,
5: I, I was getting asked a lot about, from reporters and things about, you know, when Trump was running and what I made of it. And I, my response was always like for every action, there is an equal and opposite reaction. And so Trump is a reaction. Um, and, and I and I really want to push the emphasis. I mean, Trump is horrifying and scary. And like as an individual, you know, I, I will not defend him. Um, but also, right, it's it what what I think folks should be focused on is is like so millions of people voted for him right Mm -hmm. and so we like before trump won out in mount greenwood here in chicago That's a neighborhood in chicago within a week right you have um when when was joshua Beale killed saturday i think so i think it was on saturday and today is wednesday and uh he happens to be in mount greenwood which is a very racist neighborhood um and after he is murdered and his family is is grieving and and you know the police have taken their cars and went, the restaurants won't let them stay in there so they're sort of outside processing and and folks from the community are showing up to support them. It's not a rally, it's not a demonstration, it's just supporting this family. And Mount Greenwood residents show up with their Blue Lives Matter flags, their baseball bats, and their racial slurs, and their Trump is coming for you all, going back to Africa. And that happened. That those are like that 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 is what it mean like for Trump to have one doesn't mean Trump is going to pass X, Y, and Z policy. I mean it, 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 he will. He'll pass all these policies mm-hmm. and that is horrible. Also right that is who voted for him and they are emboldened right now. Mm-hmm. They feel like they have the, that, that, that the, like white power right mm-hmm. um, and, and, and the, you know you have a reaction or a, a demonstration takes place on Sunday um, in Mount Greenwood and you have 300 of these folks show up. Right, mm-hmm. and they cheer. They cheer at the site where Joshua was, was shot down and killed when they get there, intentionally, on purpose. Mm-hmm. And and that is happening at the same time that we're do, putting in everything we've got to bring justice to these to these murders of people. Right, trying to bring attention to like the people who are caught up in cages, right, under house. Like the massiveness of this this uh, of police, of prisons, of surveillance, and and those folks are also organized. Also have yeah. their own politics. Also have a ton of resources. Also have a lot of passion for these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and we have to be honest about that. You cannot, you cannot change what you do not face. And America has to face itself. And if we get caught up in like it's Trump is this outlier, you're missing the point of what just happened. Yeah. What do we talk about? When we talk about what the prison industrial complex is at its heart, it's about control, okay? Prisons are spaces of control. PIC is absolutely dependent on surveillance, on COINTELPRO, right? Surveillance, not just to watch to know what's going on, but to manipulate you. So does that make sense?
4: It just so happened that, like, today during the lesson plan, you happen to be talking about um, PIC, the prison industrial complex. So I'm curious of, like, how you see Asada's daughter's role in fighting against that.
5: It's interesting because I came up in organizing through organizing against prisons, specifically through supporting LGBTQ prisoners. And... um I remember a moment of being like, we we aren't talking about the police, though, and they're like the gatekeepers to this, right? And now I feel like my whole world is focused on the police. And in fact, it's all of those things, right? And so as abolitionists, you know, we're, we're seeking to build up a world where we don't have police, where we don't have prisons, uh, because we don't think those are the things that keep us safe. The work that we're doing right now, we're teaching the prison industrial con- complex, starting with co- colonization and, st- and and moving into slavery, looking at the, the evolution of the slave codes, the black codes, to lynch laws, to to Jim Crow, right? All the way up through, we're gonna, we just talked about COINTELPRO and the black civil rights movement and black power movement. And we'll be going into talking about the war on terror and the war on drugs. And we do this because you see black people calling for abolition time and time and time Mm -hmm. again. A prison is not defined by the bars, right? A prison is defined by a relationship of power, or uh, 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 the presence of a kind of of control.
3: To me, to be truly an abolitionist is to say, fuck all that stuff, but also I'm willing to think about all of these other things and work through that part too. My name is Sadia, and Asada's Daughters means to me just an outlet to express myself and it gives me further understanding and things that i've been taught already or things that i've been growing up knowing it's just a further you know
0: further evidence of what i already know
3: my name's anna mccullum and asada's daughters means to me resistance i believe well i know um i believe that like asada's daughters proves that us women alone African-American women can be ourselves and live on our own and we can create a space where we can love each other and support each other. Yeah.
4: A lot of times, um, like women, especially black, queer, and trans folks, they're left out of the conversation about, like, incarceration and over-policing. So how do you think society can make a shift?
3: I mean, one easy one is to know their names. That's step one. Um, Something I had to like be like, well, I don't know these names. But Paige does this thing where she's like, raise your hand if you know the names of five, you know, queer women or five trans women that were killed, and I'm like, what? And that was my moment of like, I need to check myself. But that's like, uh, you know, definitely a first step.
5: So exactly. So we, we, we you learn and we say their names over and over mm-hmm. and over and over again. Um, and and it's hard because you have you have to meet people where they're at, right? And the reality is is, is that we are not just up against uh, against racism, right? That's not the only thing that we're experiencing. In fact, racism is shaped through and birthed through sexism as well, right? They, they, they uh, uh, and and those things have a deep relationship, and I think we have to name that. It's we're not just. It's not we're bringing like bringing in folks who are marginalized, right? Saying the names of people whose names are not said is not about. Um, it's not. I, I, I get the sense that people think it's like basic or something it's like no really though you are not free until all of us are free like that it's never going to happen right Mike Brown had a mother Who's grieving? Who is still alive and living with that murder every single day? Ronnie Man had daughters, right? Like there are, all, like it doesn't just affect those folks. And women are being killed, and we're being mm-hmm. locked up faster than any other demographic. Women of color, right? right? So it's it's like both that that these things are are they they are happening to us directly, and we have all women have always had to bear the brunt of of dealing with the mess that the state mm-hmm. leaves us with, right? And so I'm, uh, abolition to me is about abolish. It's, it's, uh, you abol- you, in order to abolish police, you have to abolish the line. Right? And in order to abolish mm-hmm. the line, you have to, to accept there are lines in this society. And you cannot ignore what's on the other side. Because what happens to them, if you just want to be selfish about it, you don't care. about really, so It's going to come and bite you in the ass, too. Um, yeah.
3: My name is Dream and I'm thirteen years old. I'm in the eighth grade and I go to Osada's daughters every Wednesday and mostly every Saturdays. What it is for me, it's basically a second home, a way I can be myself or like be around a lot of people in my situation or like near my situation. And it's awesome. Every time I leave I learned something or took something with me.
4: So I'm Patricia and for me, Asada's Daughters is a place, um, like a bubble, where I can just come outside of the hatred and the oppression that's going on in the world. And, you know, it kind of restores faith and hope in humanity that someday, whether it be 50 or 100 years from now, um, there will be an equity for everybody and a more just society. Especially seeing um, so many younger girls, 5 through 12, and then us teenagers, and then the um, older people um it just really gives me faith for the future when i feel down and when there's when all hope is lost we're in the midst of your fundraiser for november do you mind telling us like what are you raising the funds for um where will things be allocated to and like how people can help out
5: So we offer political education programming every single week on Wednesday, and that is free for our community, that is free for our young people. We have programs for young girls, black girls ages 4 through 12, as well as a program called the Omi Nira program for girls ages 13 through 19. They come to us and we we provide them with transportation to and from if they need it, as well as a free catered dinner, ideally from a black-owned restaurant. Um... While they're here, all of the curriculum, all of the materials we're having to provide, and all of that costs money. And then we also have monthly field trips where we're trying to take our young folks, like this Saturday we'll be going to the Pullman Porter Museum. Last weekend we went to a pumpkin festival so that they could get pumpkins and (laughs) enjoy the fall. Right. Um, and, uh, again, all of that we're we're having to pay for buses. uh, We're having to pay our teens' stipends, things like that. Um, also we engage in a lot of direct action and those things, again, they cost a lot of money. We have to pay for the, um,
3: Banners. The, the
5: banners, for the paint, for mm. the, the chains, for the locks, <laughs> mm. for the ladders, right? It's easy for an action to cost $3,000. And that mm. doesn't include bail if we need it. So all these things add up, and so $20,000 will cover us for the first quarter of the year. And so we're really trying, we, we believe in community. We, we try really hard to not depend on grants, and we're really lucky to have a space that is given to us for free right now. However, we're growing out of it way too quickly. Today's program, we were in the back room of a basement, a very tiny cramped room on a very dirty floor surrounded by boxes and a very loud vacuum thing of sawdust. I don't really know what that was. <laughs> yeah. if, we have our, if we have enough money, we can start to rent out a place in Washington Park and have our own space that we can leave our supplies in, right? That is big enough for us.
4: Well, thank you for taking time to sit down with me.
3: Thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank <laughs> you.
0: That was podcast producer James T. Green speaking with Kyra Lee Connor and Paige May of Asada's Daughters. To learn more about their work and donate to their fundraiser, check out asadasdaughters.org. This piece featured music by Ryan Little. The Prison in 12 Landscapes is a documentary about our prison system that never shows a single prison. Instead, the movie travels the United States, spending time in a Manhattan park with chess players and a wildfire on a California mountainside. Director and activist Brett Story spoke with our style editor, Haley Melodic, about her film. Brett, can you tell
6: us
2: a little bit about this film? Sure. Hi. Um, So the film is a a nonfiction film about the U.S. prison system um, that unfolds as a journey across 12 Places um, across the country in which we never see an actual penitentiary. Um, And why did
6: you choose to make a movie about prisons without ever showing a prison? So,
2: you know. It, once upon a time, it was actually much easier to get access to to prisons themselves, penitentiaries themselves. Um, they were closer to where people live. They were in cities. Um, but also just more open to researchers and to journalists and to filmmakers. Not completely open, but one could at least um, make a case for getting inside and doing um Documentary work of some kind, and and that's really not the case anymore. And I was kind of interested in in this problem that, on one hand, should be a dilemma for filmmakers, or would be a dilemma for someone who who is thinking about um, doing moving image work, um, and and thinking about it actually as an opportunity to do something different. And was really you know kind of interested in the relationship between um, how how people think about something when it's organized in such a way that we can't see it. Mm -hmm. So again, prisons at the same time as they've gotten bigger and bigger are actually harder to access. They're built further away. Um, They're even hard to locate on maps. Um, And this is a huge question, uh, but just
6: something that occurred to me again when I was watching the movie and reading your director's statement. What is it
2: that prisons do in America? What function do they serve? You know there's there's a sort of failure in our thinking about um, and limitation to our thinking about um, prisons and the possibility of having less of them if we think of them merely as either on the one hand successful or on the other hand failed responses to crime um, you know we just know that the evidence has demonstrated for years and years and years that the problem of crime the problem of violence isn't actually solved by the prison system um, And so I wanted to ask questions about um, why then? Why would we have so many people locked up? Why would the state spend so much money on these institutions if they don't even resolve the thing that we're told they're supposed to resolve? And so, um, you know, I think that that was an invitation for me to think and, and hopefully through the film an invitation for other people to think about what are the other kinds of work that prisons perform that actually don't have anything or very much to do with 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 crime or even with violence and so you know i have this i have one scene in the film that takes place in um the Appalachian coal fields of eastern Kentucky, and this is a region, um, you know, that for many, many decades um, survived on a coal economy. And in recent years, the coal uh, mines have been closing, and coal miners are out of work. And there's been a building spree of prisons in the in this area, and, and I mean, it's quite remarkable because the prisons are being built literally on top of closed down coal mines. Now, mountaintop remove the. The, the mountain, and then build a prison on top, and all these coal miners are trying to retrain as prison guards, and so that scene is an invitation for people, I think, to th- to to think about, you know, not not even just prisons as uh, supplying jobs, because in many cases they don't even <laughs> successfully do that, but w- w- the work that it's doing in this region is giving people hope. You know, a, a area in decline. Um, that is trying to, where people are trying to think of futurity for themselves. And, and in this place, the work that prisons perform is to give people an idea of the future. And I think that that's, I mean, it's sort of devastating that that is how people have to think about their own um, survival materially and even kind of psychically um, is through the lens of, oh, the hope that maybe a prison will come to their town and, and save their town from devastation.
6: Yeah, what you're communicating about the way prisons function in America how do you hope that audiences who see the film take that and use that in their daily lives
2: yeah I mean one of the reasons that I make films and I like art I mean as a political person as a person who also has a life doing more traditional research and and more traditional organizing work um, is that I'm 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 interested in how things become so normalized, we can't see beyond them. You know, there's a way in which prisons are a good example of something that people have a really hard time imagining a life outside, you know, as if they were, have always been here, as if they need to be here. And really, I mean, the history of the penitentiary system is only 200 years old. We could, we certainly don't need to have 2.2 million people locked up inside That. We didn't ha- we had half that number twenty years ago, um, and so I'm really interested in how um, how how art and how moving images have sound um, has the capacity to make something that feels deeply ordinary or a set of things that feel deeply ordinary um, strange again. You know, sort of to upset our sense of like what's what. Um, so on a on a really sort of basic level, um, I think that I was interested in um, unsettling ideas about w- not just where we can see the prison um, and how it's operating, but as you suggested before, how they function and why. And and part of that was because I think I, you know when you're having a conversation with people about about prisons, they're so twinned in the imagination to the issues of crime that that becomes a kind of um, sticking point for people. Like they can't, you know, there's in order to imagine a world without prisons or a world with less prisons they'd have to imagine a world without crime or a world without harm. And, and that's just hard, you know. We don't know how to solve those problems <laughs> entirely. Um, but once you, you know, the hope is in presenting the, the other things that prisons do, their other functions in, in society, um, that it would be sort of empowering to people, you know, empower the imagination to think beyond um, the necessity of those institutions.
6: Um, I wanted to ask you what you thought was the best way as an activist and an artist to create meaningful change for prisoners and for criminal justice in America.
2: That is such a big question. I know it's the
6: biggest question. <laughs> I'm sorry. But, like like yeah. you said, it's just a few days after the election. It seems like it's time to have that conversation.
2: I have immense respect for organizers, and I don't think that art could ever do what organizers do in their absence. But I do think that, um, you know, organizers are dealing with um, not just um, facts on the ground and the need to to um, empower people through collective action in some way but common sense and you know one of the most dangerous things I think about <laughs> personally think about the Donald Trump victory is the way in which it legitimates ways of thinking um, and certain kinds of common sense that are, are really really scary and and tangibly dangerous for certain people Um, you know so I'm sort of skirting the question because it's it's so it's so big and so hard but I do think that we in general need um, different kinds of strategies including what art provides and I think one of the things that art provides is a intervention into not just the space of thinking and not just the space of feeling but where those things come together, the sort of think-feel space um, of being alive. And, um, and again, sort of unsettled ideas about why things are the way they are, how they could be different, um, our relationship to others, and also to help us feel less alone. You know, I, people will often ask me if I've shown this film to people on the inside, and I'll say, well, I didn't make it for people on the inside. You know, The film doesn't tell people who have been incarcerated or the people who um, love them anything that they don't already know. It's really designed to um, suggest to people that think they have no relationship to the prison system that they, in fact, do, and that their lives are implicated in all sorts of ways, and they're responsible in all sorts of ways. Um, But I do also think that it's terribly important to um, To organize against abandonment, you know, um, and there's a way in which prisons there, themselves, not just a space of disappearance, but a space of abandonment, you know, a, a banishment. Um, we've just sort of mopped up social problems, uh, including problems of, of uh, political unrest um, and unemployment and also mental illness, all sorts of issues, and put people in these disappeared in banished spaces, and I think it's terribly important for us on the outside to, m- to make sure people on the inside don't feel abandoned, don't feel alone, to remind them that people on the outside consider them, you know, <laughs> as they are, part of our social world, um, and sort of refuse the kind of ideas, um, like the idea of the criminal, that legitimate their abandonment. Brett, thank you so much for coming in to talk with us. Uh, How can people find your movie? For a complete list of where and when the film might be coming to your town or city, you can go to the website, which is www.prisonlandscapes.com. And it will also be broadcast on um, PBS's Independent Lens in um, the spring of 2017. That was MTV's Haley Melodic speaking with Brett Story,
0: director of The Prison in 12 Landscapes. In 2012, a Russian feminist group called Pussy Riot took over Moscow's Cathedral of Christ the Savior, performing a piece called Punk Prayer, Virgin Mary, Put Putin Away. They wore balaclavas to hide their identities, but the performance led to the arrest of three of their members and put them on an international map. The women spent almost two years in jail for hooliganism, and several human rights groups named them prisoners of conscience. Nadia Tolokonikova started Pussy Riot and continues to release music to protest injustices today. Her latest music video, called Make America Great Again, imagines a dystopia in which Donald Trump is president of the United States. I should tell you, we recorded this interview last week when the concept seemed a little bit further away than it does now. Podcast producer Mukta Mohan talked to Nadia about her political beliefs, the use of music to protest, and her work with Pussy Riot.
7: Nadia, thanks for being here. Hello. You were 21 when you started Pussy Riot and before that you were actively involved in another performance art group. What led you to music and performance as a political act?
1: I believe that music could really make people to do something. Music is really great empowering instrument. And it started like that. Music started like prayer. Music, Music started like a process of initiation. When young people become adults they they, they would have uh, this event of initiation with with some special music about it and then uh, in the middle ages everything everything was about uh, monasteries and about uh, churches and about prayers about music that's why we, that's why we made our punk prayer um, and not all music should be political, but there should be some political music music speaks to a lot of people when you're uh, just uh, writing political book, who will read it? Maybe some like, like-minded people, but you want to speak with with broader audience, you want to speak with young people, you want to encourage them to do some action. Uh, that's why we started Pussy Riot, because we wanted to speak with kids. And I want to... I want to show kids that they could do everything. When we started PC we we didn't know how to play the guitar. I, I still don't know, <laughs> but everybody, including you, <laughs> believe that we are a punk band. So look, it works. You, you just have to start to think about that and believe and everything will work.
7: <laughs> For a lot of people, political action starts and ends with voting, um, especially with young people. Do you think that we have an obligation to pursue broader political action? Uh,
6: I believe
1: that it's another common thing between Russian people and American people, and probably people in general. They they usually tend to believe that somebody will come and save their lives. They 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 will not. In Russia, a lot of people who are who are not they're not fans of Vladimir Putin. They they don't like him as well, uh, but they don't want to do anything about that, and they ask us political activists like. What is your plan? What you will do? Like, w- 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 but why just we? Like, we could join our forces. We have our plans, you have yours. You have your experience, and we could build a better country together. And not just on the level of uh, who will be president. Not just on that level. You could change, uh, you could change uh, really a lot between elections. And as you noticed before, a lot of young people right now, they're really frustrated that Bernie is not candidate. Me too. I love Bernie. I think it will be much better political conversation and it will be real political conversation right now if, if, if it would be conversation between Hillary and Bernie. But unfortunately, we don't have it. And if we will not work on achieving this level of conversation for the next four years, who knows like, who, like, what motherfucker will come <laughs> the next time, because who could, who could predict that Donald Trump will be candidate? Nobody. I mean, we should work to pre- prevent ourselves from this kind of shit.
7: <laughs> so you actually served jail time as a prisoner of conscience because of the punk prayer action, um, and that put you on an international map. Is anonymity still important to you for future actions, or do you think that there's a benefit to being known now?
1: Uh, unfortunately, our government uh, made my face known. It, it was really hard to keep my mask in uh, prison. Uh, it, actually, it was it was impossible, because uh, when you enter the prison, they look everywhere. They look in your mouth, in your ass, in your vagina, and you couldn't really keep this mask on. So right now, I, I would love, if, if not that time in prison, if I would not be forced to release my identity, I would still do Anonymous actions because they believe in the power of anonymity, and a lot of people who in pussy ride who still has this pleasure to be anonymous, they 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 enjoy this pleasure. But I'm just have to deal with what I have. So (laughs) I mean, if I will put a mask right now on myself, it will be quite. um, It will be it will be like coquettish, (laughs) you you know who I am, so that's why I have to speak with you with my open face. But I will encourage people around me to use anonymity,
7: because it's a great tool. Um, How has Pussy Riot evolved within the past few years?
1: Uh, In the past few years, we worked a lot on creating a media outlet. Strangely, (laughs) a lot of people from Pussy Riot took part in creating, in the process of creating this independent voice in modern Russia. It is called Media Zona. We have our own media, uh, 20 journalists works there. So for the last two years, mostly we we spent our time on that. I think around one year ago, I decided to do more art because just naturally as an artist i i I start to die my soul and my hands and my vagina they they just start to to die without art so we made some music (laughs) you could you could enjoy it right now um in future i'm planning to do more music videos if you have some ideas if you want to do it with us because we are super open to everything like literally everything i believe that you could really experience your freedom when you are open to spontaneous decisions that's how i live so when people des- uh, ask me oh uh, should we meet in 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 ukraine in february of next year and like, i have no idea where i will be in february of next year so yeah if you have some ideas just tell me
7: <laughs> well thank you so much for joining us thank you
0: That was podcast producer Mukta Mohan speaking with Nadia Tolokonikova of Pussy Riot. Finally, let's return, as we so often do, to Marcus Ellsworth, our poet in residence. He was in New York City to help us cover election night and read us his poem, Over My Shoulder. We've asked him to share it with our audience here. I hope it brings you some peace.
8: Look at the clock and mark the hour, the minute, the second you were called to remember how far we've come in this fight that's just begun. How folks faced guns and dogs and ropes for more freedoms than just the right to vote. But we've still got cops who think traffic stops give them the right to end someone's life. Love was once hidden out of fear. Now more of us than ever are out proud and queer, but that does not guarantee that any of us are free from losing our families, jobs, homes, or the right to breathe. We slept on the needs of trans people too long. Now we need to right that wrong. From bathrooms to classrooms, we've got to stop transphobic goons who bully bodies for being beyond the binary. We should celebrate the extraordinary glory of a soul writing their own story. We need real family values to hold and value families over border control. Honor the work of those who have come to America's shores because everyone is standing on stolen land where immigrants are exploited every day. But we could be the land of opportunity and find ways to stand in unity as we get ourselves and each other free from the powers that be dividing you from me because of the lines left on maps by men who only wanted to own the world. A world that we will reclaim from patriarchy, oil dependency and white supremacy that have left a legacy which could have stolen your future. But look at the clock and mark the hour, the minute, the second that you were called to summon up your own power. Brought into this world by your ancestors, driven by the promise of true justice, forged by every survivor's scar and each lover's kiss, sustained by you taking hold of your destiny and letting go of the doomsday prophecies, because you are here to greet the rising sun and declare to the world that the work is not done.
0: That was Marcus Ellsworth. I'm Holly Anderson, and those were The Stakes. Stay as safe as you can out there and take care of each other. We'll be back next week.
2: This episode of The Stakes was produced by Michael Catano, James T. Green, Mukta Mohan, and Kasia Mihailovich for the MTV Podcast Network, with additional engineering by Little Everywhere. You can subscribe to this and all of our other shows on iTunes, Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever else you find your favorite podcasts.